You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Nicole Turnerly, co-host of the Tech Tank Podcast. Today, we are talking about spectrum. Spectrum, that indispensable part of our everyday lives, even though we cannot see it physically. Spectrum consists of those radio transmissions that power our traditional broadcast stations, the stuff we listen to on the radio, in our cars, but it facilitates even greater communications via our smartphones or our mobile devices, which has had immeasurable leaps in technological progress over the last few decades. From enabling daily tasks found on internet-enabled apps to essential federal necessities such as space operations, aeronautical or maritime navigation, Spectrum, it is a finite critical resource with regulatory responses and licensing processes split between the U.S. Federal Communications Commission and the National Telecommunications and Information Administration and the Department of Commerce. Both of these have non-federal and federal use respectively. But spectrum policy has been essential to drive and investigate existing and emerging technologies, and it's helped us to determine how to encourage new innovations while ensuring equitable and widely represented access. When I talk about spectrum, if you still aren't following me, I'm talking about things like 5G, fifth generation wireless, has further complicated this field of spectrum policy. It is perhaps the fastest technology we've seen in the mobile space, but we need more of it to realize these aspirations. And I want to say, before we introduce our guests, that successfully closing the digital divide, which many of us care about today, requires more of it in the licensed and unlicensed spaces in which we exist. So we're going to go a little deeper in this with my set of wonderful experts today. We're joined by Andrew Van Ah, who is a director in the Government Accountability's Office, Physical Infrastructure Team. Shane Tooze, a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and Kathleen Burke, policy counsel at Public Knowledge. Thanks for joining me, everybody. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Nicole. You know, listen, I'm excited about this conversation. Shane will tell you, it takes me a long time to talk about Spectrum (laughs) because it is one of those areas where those of us who are very wonky, we get into it, right? And the rest of us who actually rely upon our mobile technologies, we don't quite understand what this means. So Andrew, I'm going to turn to you first, because I want you to do some level setting for our listeners to this field of spectrum and spectrum policy. Quickly outline for us what spectrum is and how it is used for various transportation, communication technologies, defense technologies, and why everyday people should care about this. Sure, thanks, Nicole. And I, I think you outlined it pretty well right at the outset. You know, the spectrum we're talking about here in this context is really the radio frequency spectrum. 
So we're talking about frequencies from three kilohertz up to about 300 gigahertz, give or take. The folks are most familiar with those frequencies we see in our radio dial. Uh, that's the low band spectrum. And of course, we all carry around our cell phones and rely on spectrum to communicate through that technology. And spectrum enables a whole host of other wireless and mobile technologies, right? So we're talking about communications with satellites. Weather forecasts rely on satellites being able to sense various frequencies that emit from the natural properties of the earth. GPS, radar, safety applications like that, that we all rely on. Certainly all the wireless devices in our homes, all of these things are enabled by spectrum. And so in terms of, you know, why should we all care? Certainly spectrum is in high demand. You know, wireless carriers are seeking more spectrum in the low, mid and high band to build out 5G networks that'll have more capacity, will be faster, will enable more data intensive applications. And demand is increasing for all the other uses of spectrum as well, including federal government uses that you mentioned too. But all the usable spectrum in the range that I mentioned has really already been assigned. So as this demand increases and we try to reallocate or repurpose spectrum for different uses, the disputes over who should get to use the spectrum and for what purposes have and will continue to arise, and the potential for interference will continue to grow as well, which really means that the effective management of this resource by FCC and NTA has really become so increasingly important. Yeah, no, thank you for that, because I think people don't realize, you know, when we turn on our mobile devices, we automatically think, oh, this is this is foolproof, right? This is not a problem. It's connected somewhere, but we cannot see just how competitive this space is, which, Shane, is why I want to come to you, because I want you to explain to our listeners how spectrum licensing works, right, with both the FCC and the NTIA, and what are the differences between licensed and unlicensed spectrum, and where are the most active disputes that Andrew sort of referenced? when it comes to people talking about spectrum sharing. So I gave you a lot, Shane, but I know you can handle this one, right? But speak to us a little bit about, you know, how the licensing process works and these differences of the world of spectrum that we see and we don't see. So thanks, Nicole, and thanks for having me on the show. You know, I'm a very visual person, so I've always struggled with the fact that all these things are going on and we can't see them. I mean, it really thoroughly fascinates me. And so I was trying to come up with a visual the other day about how you recalibrate the use of spectrum and, and give a visual to somebody who isn't in our industry. So I'm going to try this on. And you guys let me know if it works. I was sort of, and I realize it's old school because everything's on, we buy things on the internet now, but when you used to go into a department store, there was like major real estate. Like they knew they wanted, you know, like men won't go past the first area or they put the things that you know you're going to go get. They can put those in the basement because you're actually going to go down and get them. So when we're reshuffling spectrum, we're trying to find the things that are of most value or best used or better use. And part of our challenge on that is what you brought up. I'm going to step away from the department store here for a second, is the licensed and unlicensed use of spectrum. So for all of us that are on Wi-Fi right now, you are probably on a lot of unlicensed use, which is how Wi-Fi really came to be such a cool thing, is they were able to use the little pockets of spectrum that people weren't using for other things. And licensed is for very specific uses. And where that is actually very important is it has a lot higher value. And there's a lot of challenge to wanting to find those better places. And it, and because of the way we are finding better and faster and more unique ways to use Spectrum, you're finding values in places that they didn't used to be. So going back to that the idea of, you know, how do we kind of look at this is like, you know, am I willing to go up an escalator one floor to find something? So can we bring something that we know we're all going to use that Spectrum? Can we knock that up a, a notch maybe in the Spectrum chart and put something else in something that it would be a very big, great use for common interest? that needs to be in a in like what you're saying, the mid-band spectrum. So these are the type of weird challenges that we're in is we have this 
amazing yet finite capacity to use the airwaves. And we want to make sure that we're using them as best as possible. The biggest user or the biggest, I should say, the, the you know, occupier of spectrum is the government. And especially for us, it's the U.S. government. And we don't always know exactly where they are and are not for a bunch of national security reasons, which makes it also a more interesting game to play. So we're trying to figure out more and more use, obviously, as we said, like Wi-Fi, IoT devices, things that are, are using elements of the spectrum. Where do we make this easier for consumers and possibly business to business? That's a big use case for 5G. Is actually, as much as we like to think it's all, everything's about us, 5G is really about machines to machines getting faster, that, that lack of latency in between things, but they need to be on that right spectrum band for them to work. So can we reshuffle a few things that don't necessarily need to be in their current space and move them to another area? There's a lot of negotiations, not only with the government, there's an interagency process that goes on with that, but also with commercial entities. So I'm not sure I made that any clearer, but I put a lot of things on no, the table. No, you did. You did. I mean, look, uh, you were talking about your visual. You know the example I always use when I'm talking about spectrum policy? I know that the team is going to look at me a little weird. I always tell people, imagine you're in your car and you're trying to find a good station, a radio station, and you hit these dead spots or you hit these spots where they're competing. It's country music over rap music. <laughs> you're like, what is going on here? You know, not only are we searching for signals in the broadcast space, but it's sort of a illustration of why we just need more broadcast frequencies, right? Because all of the things that are now running across these networks, I mean, I'm going to date myself I didn't have a cell phone when I was young. We had a rotary, you know, my number was any six, two, four, three, seven. Okay. I'll leave it right there. We didn't have all of these devices and now we have a much more congested world. So Shane, you hit it right on the mark that we have to really think about, you know, not only what we do in the licensed versus unlicensed space for those of you unlicensed is when you go into places like your local cafe or other places and you're able to jump on their Wi-Fi, but really how we constitute the type of real estate for spectrum that allows for these growing cases, right, Shane, of, of mobile technologies. Well, going back to your radio, old school radio, where you'd be like 95.9 to 95.7. Right. <laughs> Why isn't there a 95.6? And that used to be the guard band made sure that the entities that had the 95.5 versus 7 had a clear use of that spectrum space. But we don't need those guard bands to be as thick as they used to be. We've gotten a lot smarter and digital has allowed us to bring a lot more of, of lots of things in that space where we used to have to, that was that, you know, way back, you know, you would hear like the crackling in between them. We don't have that anymore. So we can use that space. That's right. That's right. So Kathleen, let's sort of bring this back to people. I want to really speak to you about how does this help us solve the digital divide, right? I think we often think that this is a very technical conversation, but we do know, for example, that over 90% of African-Americans and Latinos rely upon mobile technologies, for example, as just one use case to be able to get online. In some cases, as Pew Research Center has suggested, smartphone dependent. So why is it that we really have to care about spectrum, spectrum policy, particularly when we're trying to get internet access to a larger group of people? Yeah, so when it comes to wireless service, if you don't have access to Spectrum as a service provider, then you can't provide service. So the structure of how we access or provide access to Spectrum really has an impact on who gets service and how much service that's going to cost. 
an example that I like to use is when you're looking at like spectrum license regimes and the FCC is just determining what what the rules around a license should be. One of the things they look at is like the size of the geographic footprint of that license. And while it seems like a very innocuous data point, it actually can have dramatic impacts on the cost of service and who gets service. So the larger the geographic area of a license is, the more expensive that license is going to be. And so that creates a scenario where only the largest carriers can afford to bid on that spectrum. And when that happens, you have a decline in competition and you tend to have carriers that will build out service to the most profitable parts of their license and not to the other less profitable parts, which is often underserved communities, minority communities, tribal areas, and other groups that are suffering from lack of access. And so when when the commission sets a geographic license that's a little bit smaller, then it makes it more feasible for your smaller competitors or your smaller service providers to bid on that spectrum and then be able to provide service to the communities that they serve. And a good example of that is looking at the Citizen Broadband Radio Service Band, the CBRS Band, where there was this multi-access regime and there were these priority access licenses that were provided on a county-by-county basis for these 10 megahertz channels, which allowed a lot more services to get access to the spectrum they needed in order to serve various communities that wouldn't have otherwise been able to be served with that spectrum. Wow, so that's very interesting. And hopefully we'll talk a little bit about auction, right? Because I think what we're finding under the auction process that the Federal Communications Commission is actually deploying, that we're seeing some of these licenses and costs sort of come down or be a little bit more competitive. I want to talk about that just a little bit more. In response, Andrew, to what you've heard so far, I think one other level setting that we need to do is this concept that you brought up of spectrum interference. I knew it was going to happen with the three of you, which is starting to get into the particular bands. Uh (laughs) I just knew it was going to happen. I know it was going to happen this early. But Andrew, why don't you talk a little bit about what is spectrum interference and how spectrum management helps mitigate those harms. And then we'll start getting into this pipeline and some of the bands that we should be concerned with and interested in. (laughs) Sure. Interference put simply can happen you know when devices are operating using the same or nearby frequencies at the same time or in the same area and sort of like you drop two pebbles into a pond and you see the waves kind of moving towards each other and when they hit right they sort of disrupt each other and so that's kind of what what interference really is you know some interference is kind of inevitable in some ways and doesn't necessarily pose a problem whereas other types of interference really can be harmful and cause some real communications problems and disrupt uh, different uses So FCC and NTIA's roles as federal spectrum managers really are critical to making sure we manage the spectrum to enable that wide variety of users without causing the harmful interference. So they do this in a number of ways, right? So they set rules, operating rules for the use of the spectrum. So, you know, the unlicensed spectrum that Shane was talking about has certain, you know, only at certain power levels can you be using that spectrum. So it's not really going to, you know, your Wi-Fi in your home isn't going to interfere with the Wi-Fi of your neighbor, for example. But even with licenses, there's going to be various parameters on how you can use that spectrum and where it can be used at what power levels. And even when you're talking about trying to reallocate spectrum for different uses, You know, NTIA and FCC and the federal agencies that are typically involved are really meant to work together to figure out where and when that interference may occur, how damaging it might be, 
and then really set parameters for use that avoid harmful interference. And of course, this has been where some of these processes have broken down in the last few years. So, you know, bringing up that specific spectrum band, Nicole, that you were talking about. So in the 24 gigahertz band, for example, you know, there were a lot of concerns about, you know, 5G operations in that band interfering with weather satellites' ability to sense that frequency to get some readings for for various, and to then, you know, make weather forecasts as a result of it, right? So... The agencies, you know, in that case, really couldn't come to an agreement or to a consensus in terms of what those parameters should be in terms of the the how that fre- those frequencies can be used, or what that interference would really look like. And so that's really, I think, what's critical is for the agencies, NTIA and FCC in particular, to come together to really to build that consensus early on. You know, I want to stay here for just a moment and then I have a question because you're so right. I think many people listening recently heard the interference when it came to like the airport, for example, you know, the weather satellites. We constantly hear some of the examples where there's true harm, right, and potential harm that can be actualized in areas where there might be just more raised alarm. You all would not believe this. I found just the other day a paper when I was on the FCC advisory on diversity, where I was co-chairwoman, you you ready for this one, of the spectrum management team. (laughs) (laughs) This was under former FCC chairman, Julius Jelikowski, where we were actually talking about spectrum use. I couldn't believe they put me in charge with somebody else on this one. I just couldn't believe it because I was so new in my career. But I still struggle with the differences between the NTIA and FCC. So Andrew, just before we move on, clarify for people the different roles and responsibilities and where they actually cooperate and how they've gotten better cooperating. Sure. Yeah. It's actually sort of a fascinating structure, right? Because we have the FCC, which is an independent agency under the oversight of Congress and is a commission really, right? It's not an agency as we think of as a, an, of an executive branch agency, for example, right? So they're a regulator of the commercial uses of spectrum. So they look and non-federal uses. So state and local uses as well kind of lump into that. But FCC is really the entity that will determine whether Spectrum should be licensed or unlicensed, what its general uses are. You know, various uh, Spectrum has, at different levels, has different kind of characteristics that maybe make it uh, more useful for certain uses over others. Whereas NTIA was, is within the Department of Commerce and is the regulator of federal spectrum use. So it's sort of an interesting thing that NTIA is within Department of Commerce, but regulates all the other federal agencies' use of spectrum, right? So it's a little bit of a, a slightly, you know, not necessarily one you would sort of say, oh, that, that makes perfect sense, right? So NTIA works with the federal agencies through something called the Interdepartmental Radio Advisory Committee to understand whether proposed uses from FCC are going to be harmful to federal agency operations and vice versa. And they work through a variety of subcommittees as well to determine sort of like what kinds of interference might happen. NTIA keeps a log of all of the federal spectrum uses, even those that are confidential or top secret, and then also assigns and reassigns federal spectrum on a regular basis. I think they go through something like 90,000 different frequency assignments in a typical year. And so that's the differences between the two agencies. And they're meant to work together in terms of overall spectrum 
strategy and policy. They recently developed a new memorandum of understanding between the two agencies that sort of outlines opportunities for them to coordinate and collaborate much earlier in reallocation processes to discuss what's coming up, what's needed. And they've also sort of tried to, in that MOU, improve their ability to resolve conflicts and improve their ability to understand the science behind what, you know, the kind of interference that might happen from some proposed uses. Yeah, and that makes sense. I think for people to understand is how intricate this relationship is between the FCC and NTI. I think this is, again, with this being an invisible asset, people don't understand oftentimes just the work that has to go into categorizing the spectrum pipeline. And I'm going to get back to Kathleen when she talked a little bit about the different bands. But before we do that, Shane, I mean, Andrew just sort of laid out the distinct functions of each government agency. I mean, the FCC is over the auction process. And as you and I know, and everybody on this episode know, auctions have been both helpful to reallocate some of the spectrum bands that maybe were in the possession of the government but they've also been helpful to raise money for the national treasury, right? But there have been some effects of those auctions when it comes to release to market. And I know you've written a lot about that. Share with us what effects that type of release to market flow has, you know, once, you know, there's been an auction of particular spectrum assets and how that's fared on innovation when we look at this whole emerging mobile marketplace. So, the analogy I use for people is real estate. And again, it goes to that better or best use. I mean, you might be driving down the road and you wonder why there is a big open field that hasn't been used well. And it might be because it has had certain spectrum uses that nobody has gone and really reviewed those in a while. And that is what we've been going through recently is really taking a hard look at the use of all these different spectrum bands because with newer equipment, we have a much more efficient use of this. And I just want to go back to you that you mentioned about the around Christmas, we were having the challenge of rubber planes going to fall to the sky because 5G was going around in around airports. And that whole issue was ultimately about two things. One was older equipment that was on the use of certain planes and needing to be able to identify that and make sure that we understood where and who you know those were going out. But it also went to the science, you know, making sure that we had an accurate read of how this information worked with each other and where there's interference. Because we do have certain bands that, for example, the Navy use, and as long as you're at sea, that could be a problem. But once you are off of those bands, maybe I'm from you know the great state of Nebraska, we you may be able to use it in the Midwest for maybe agriculture uses. And so understanding where there are friction points so we have a good clarity and security around that, and then areas where you can use cross-function in this. And it goes a little bit back to our Licensed versus unlicensed, there are areas of spectrum where you can do spectrum sharing and other areas where you really need to have full use and and licensing that is yours and you know how you can manage it and use it. So when you think about how we should be looking at these spectrum auctions, the, the key thing the auction brings is it is a real value. It uses the market to say what is considered more valuable and less. And so the, as mentioned earlier, CBRS was the whole idea that that's a shared band And there wasn't as much interest in that because people weren't completely sure what they were buying into and how often they would have use of that spectrum. They had a pretty good idea about it. But when you're spending this much money, you want to have a really good, if not 100 percent understanding about when and how you're going to be able to use that spectrum. So the other bands that were able to be fully licensed went for more money. And we, you know, and it actually brought quite a bit of money back into the federal government because when the, the auctions take place, this money goes into the general treasury. One of the questions we have up in September is the end of September, that authority to have spectrum auctions is in, needs to be renewed. 
And so you know, there's a big question about, you know, when and how long should that go on? I believe the current thought is that they'll renew it for a temporary 180 days while we work through the election cycle and, and get some more understanding about, you know, what is the best time sequence on this? Some people have said, well, maybe it's maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's infinity. And the answer I usually get if I ask that question is you don't want to have it too far out because you want always to have these different entities to be able to go back in and do that market evaluation of what is the best current use of the spectrum. So if we give them too long of a leash on it, you may be giving away a value that is not the best use for the taxpayers because it ultimately starts with the government. And then we decide, you know, where we're going to put commercial use, where we're going to continue to have government use. And there, that value does bring money back into the U.S. Treasury. And I think part of the conversation, and thank you for that, Shane, is like, there are different levels to this. So I've written a lot around, you know, spectrum policy and how it impacts the deployment of certain technologies for communities of color. And one of the areas, Kathleen, that I actually found is that as Shane was talking about, when we start looking at this pipeline, there are varying degrees of spectrum that can actually help us with particular use cases, whether it's low, it's mid or high band spectrum. And one of the areas that I recently wrote about was, for example, in the C band, which has since been adopted. You know, we watch places like China, right, that were actually pushing out in some of the lower and mid band spectrum levels, some of their emerging technologies. Speak to the audience about you know, these gradations of spectrum, how they differ, what you can do on either, and why we need to start engaging, you know, as, as Andrew and Shane have indicated, you know, if we have this scarcity, if we have these pipeline concerns, we need to do better coordination going forward. And we're doing a pretty good job, but we need to keep pushing this envelope is what I'm hearing. What about these different bands, right? And how can that effectuate change or make the, the technologies much more ubiquitous? Yeah, so spectrum bands are often described as either high band, mid band, or low band. And each of those corresponds to different frequencies. And over over time, the you know, the range of which bands fall within those three categories has actually shifted as technology has improved in how we use these different spectrum frequencies. The you know, with the current state of like 5G, low band spectrum is, you know, bands below one gigahertz. And low band spectrum, what it's really good for is it's able to have high coverage over a large area without too much concern for interference with trees and walls and other geographic impediments. But at the same time, it has lower capacity and it's not quite as fast when it comes to your speeds. Now with mid-band spectrum, that's now considered like one gigahertz to the six gigahertz range. This is kind of considered the beachfront of spectrum today because it has the right balance between coverage and capacity and, you know, doesn't have as many concerns with interference issues from trees and walls and things as, as high band capacity, as high band spectrum does. Now your high band spectrum is basically above six, six gigahertz and then all the way up to, you know, above 24 gigahertz, we get into millimeter wave. And as the frequency increases, the, you know, the ability to carry data and have high speeds increases dramatically, but so does the susceptibility to interference from walls and, you know, other impediments in the, in, in the space. And so there's some use cases that make more sense in like your high band frequencies, a lot of, 
your satellite services have been put up in the high band because when you're sending a signal from space down to Earth, you don't have as many concerns with trees getting in the way or walls getting in the way. But when you're trying to send a signal terrestrial across the, you know, like from your like Wi-Fi router um, or from your cell service carrier, your cell tower across a more kind of lateral signal, you have these more concerns about are trees going to get in the way or are building walls going to get in the way, which is why you find mid-band is kind of more as is a better band for those types of services. And so there's there's a very technical kind of physical aspect to spectrum that does impact what services make sense in which bands. But at the same time, as our technology has improved with, you know, how how signals are sent and how they're received, the ability to use some bands that were considered unusable has has shifted over time. Um, and so there's this constant kind of change in how we think about spectrum and what's usable for what services. Like, for example, right now, the FCC is considering opening, opening up 12 gigahertz for 5G use, which is, you know, a controversial proceeding. But at the same time, the thought that 12 gigahertz could be used for 5G would have, you know, was, was not something anybody thought would have been possible a decade ago. So, I mean, setting aside that 5G didn't exist a, a decade ago. But there's this, it goes to show just like as technology changes, the ability to use spectrum in more efficient ways for services does shift shift over time. Hey, Nicole, can I add a story in there? Because I think Yeah, no, please. I was going to ask you and Andrew to chime in so we can have more conversation about this. Yep. So my uncle moved in Colorado about two years ago and, I, and his neighbor walked over and it's one of those like, hey, so he's in the middle of nowhere. And I go, so what do you do? He goes, oh, I used to, he works for he's a tech company and he was the co-creator of GoGo. <laughs> the company you know, the one that's on airplanes. And I was like, always wanted to know how does it work? Like, you know, how did we go from not being able to do anything but watch movies or whatever bad movies that, you know, airline pick for you to all of a sudden having all this Wi-Fi on airplanes? And, you know, there's, I guess my assumption was always it was satellite and it started. And one of the reasons why GoGo was based out of Atlanta and Delta was the first one to bring it on board is they were able to test all of this using the wireless towers. And so it was a matter of like figuring out the clearance and interference. And so they used to run from Atlanta to basically to Kansas City, where they just had a, a, a lot of people that could would, you know, wanted to be in on this experiment and they would see how much they could figure that all out and they could figure out how high they could get until they would adjust things. And I said, well, what was the final thing that made it work? He goes, Are, we had to figure out, again, to the point of the equipment, we had to figure out how to get the wires or the, in, in the indicator away from the aeronautical equipment and where to put the antenna on the airplane. And that's just like, I feel like we're in all these different iterative cycles right now of all these different things we do, or we're not, we're just a little, we're learning inch by inch how to use it better and more efficient. And once you hit that sweet spot, you get a whole new use of the spectrum space. And you're like, hell, I don't need this whole section here because I figured out how to make it clean. And now you can bring that, you know, into possible commercial or, or put it back into federal use. Well, I think that's the process that we've been, you know, begging for as policymakers and think tank experts that follow this, this more, I don't want to say responsible, but just be more ingenuity when it comes to spectrum management. But I mean, come on, we know that that ingenuity has had its challenges, like the interference with uh, satellites. Am I right about that, Andrew? (laughs) Like that's been a problem. Like when we start getting more creative, we start causing a few more regulatory challenges. It's certainly 
they can. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right. Or 5G for that matter. I mean, I would love to get for our listeners, you know, where are we with Spectrum and 5G? If anybody wants to chime in just briefly on that, because I think we're learning that high band was the ideal, but getting to some of these low and mid bands and hybrids of both has been a great solution, particularly in areas like rural, which where we need the depth and the capacity to cover these large areas. So just curious, like where is the 5G debate when it comes to spectrum? Are we close to reaching our goal? I know the FCC has put some stuff out, but just would be curious to hear from one of you on that. Well, I can jump in a little bit on that, Nicole. They've reallocated a pretty large amount of spectrum for 5G purposes and auctioned it off with great success in terms of financially to the U.S. Treasury, right? So, but 5G is a bit of a spectrum hog to be sort of blunt about it. And of course, it's not, it doesn't just stop with 5G. 5G evolves into 6G and wireless carriers are already kind of thinking about what's necessary for the next generation of their networks. And what's the big push now is, so there was a lot of success in getting some of that high band spectrum auctioned out. And that high band spectrum has some specific uses in very dense areas. It carries a lot of data, but it doesn't really do so well with a lot of impediments. It's not going to get through a lot of the geographical kinds of areas. And so it's really useful for those dense urban areas where you might have a ton of people on their phones all at once, right? Or a stadium or something like that. But when you get out into rural areas and even in tribal areas, you're dealing with, you know, larger expanses of land. You have less sort of infrastructure to put antennas on. You have to build, you know, a whole new sort of network relative to 5G. But it has like great, you know, ability to to provide great service in some of those areas, depending on kind of how you do it. So there you're talking about a lot of mid-band spectrum. And that's where, you know, the big push is right now. How can we free up more of this mid-band spectrum? Because we know there's going to be more demand for it. And so when you get to the idea of what can we free up and to auction off, you know, to allow those carriers to to build out those networks more fully, that's where we're going to be looking is the federal agency holdings. Well, the other thing that's really interesting about 5G is, first of all, figuring out again how we are able to reconfigure the knowledge, the hardware, but the creation of like software defined networks and ability to you know, really utilize that all came into sync about the same time. And so the... You know, people are thinking that they've, they've probably heard about it for like the last three, four or five years, but the planning process on it has been going on easily for 10 to 15 years because they had to think about how they were going to use the network servers and, and get smarter and faster about this. So when we think about the spectrum planning, we have to realize that we do need a spectrum strategy. And that is one thing that we're actually lacking. Right now, we're kind of leaping ahead in, in good, you know, kind of a lily pad way. But we really need to think about this amazing resource that we have and how do we best utilize it and then when we do see those pockets that aren't being best used you know when do we go back to the, the probably the FCC and say hey can we can we have a negotiation around this there's a better way to use this can we maybe reconfigure some things so there's a lot of planning that goes into that which I think we all need to continue to be cognizant of you know there have been a couple of points of talking about the best use of spectrum or how we put it to the best use and the you know the value of raising money at auctions but you know spectrum efficiency and how we use it it's not just about how much money it can generate it's also about how can we ensure that at a technical level we're using the spectrum to its maximum capacity to provide services and there are some services that you know while they may not be able to afford licenses they still are incredibly valuable um, to getting people connected and ensuring that people have access to very critical telecommunication services. And so this concept of like how we use spectrum and, and what is the best use, it should consider that as well, not just 
the cost of how much you know money can be raised at auction and so i'm thinking specifically about you know unlicensed uses which is how you know anybody who uses wi-fi is using unlicensed spectrum and that spectrum never went to auction um that spectrum or if it did it it, it went as like a licensed you know shared regime like we have in cbrs or or um other you know other things like they're considering in 12 gigahertz but this you know need to use spectrum so that it's getting its highest and best use also needs to consider not just the cost of it but how people are getting connected how many people are being served what types of you know services are able to get the spectrum that they need in order to provide these critical communication services to society See, I knew an hour was just not going to be enough for this conversation. <laughs> I just knew it. I was telling myself we need a Spectrum 1 and a Spectrum 2, so I may have to have you hold back. Before we start wrapping up, though, I do want to ask about how this all relates to the recent Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act funding, because obviously we have this goal of pretty much 100% penetration when it comes to high-speed broadband networks. But are we going to reach that if we have this mismatch with Spectrum? So, Andrew, I know you researched this at GAO and you just recently testified around, you know, our Spectrum policies here in the U.S. Are we going to meet these goals with the IIJA? Well, that's a, a very, very good question. It's the question that's on my mind pretty much every day as, I, as we go to work trying to support the Congress right. and our research. But really, the IIJA, what, is, what did it really do is just provide more money. Right. So we're talking about $65 billion for broadband. And really, it changes the nature of the game a little bit because traditionally the money for broadband infrastructure has gone through either FCC's high cost program, which went to traditional carriers to expand their networks into areas that were less profitable for them. And through the Department of Agriculture's Rural Utility Service programs that were meant to sort of encourage economic development in rural. So now we're talking about $42 billion of that 65 going to states to essentially administer their own programs to address broadband gaps that they have. And, and each state is going to have their own plan in terms of what they want to do with that, with that money. There's also some other money right there as well. So there's a $2 billion more that goes specifically to the Tribal Connectivity Program that was established in 2021, which is the only program that's really focused on tribal connectivity issues. And really could be, you know, th these are grants that are very critical for tribes to be able to use the two and a half gigahertz licenses that they got a year ago or so. Many tribes, uh, hundreds of tribes actually ended up getting that, that two and a half gigahertz band to, to enable them to help to build out, you know, a network using that, that kind of spectrum. So really, this is all about there's just money, money going out in all different directions, right? $14 billion going to the Affordable Connectivity Program to help with the other side of the digital divide, right? Making broadband more affordable. So for us, our focus is trying to think about ways to make sure that that money is spent effectively, right? That we're looking at whether or not agencies are coordinating closely with each other, whether they're talking and, and coordinating with state broadband leaders to make sure that those funds are going to get used effectively, that the federal programs that are continuing to fund broadband on an ongoing basis are coordinated with what the state efforts are going to be doing so that we're not sort of doing you know, a lot of wasteful duplication of effort kinds of things. And we want to make sure that we prevent fraud and waste in these programs. And so that's 
what GIO's focus is. And we've made a number of, we've issued some reports and made some recommendations. We think the White House needs to sort of develop a strategy here to help coordinate these efforts. We talked about a strategy for spectrum, but I think there also needs to be one around how we're thinking about broadband infrastructure. And we also recommended a lot of ways to improve coordination among the agencies and all these various programs. Others in terms of whether or not we're going to accomplish our goals with matching spectrum policy with the closing the digital divide? Well, I think part of that is defining what your actual goals are, because there is a lot of things they'd like this money to do. So um, the, the notice of proposed rulemaking, or whatever the NOFO stands for, has a lot of additional things that weren't actually in the congressional legislation that was recently called out by a, a letter by a bunch of senators. And part of that is the um, one thing like the middle mile deployment. So we are, you know, depending on whether we're looking at unserved or underserved, which could be a decision by the state on where they want to use their resources and, and how far out you have to go, you know, the connectivity does vary. And while like fiber is king and is amazing, fiber is also, it isn't, you know, it, it's expensive. And there may be points where it's just too expensive to go to the link for how many people you're going to connect. And there are fixed wireless and satellite options, which then come back into the spectrum conversation. You know, how are we getting those people connected along the way? So there's a, there's kind of a, a, a quantity and quality sliding scale we have to look at depending on where these areas are. I know I, you know, I love the idea of running around the country, but there are certain times when I'm just off the grid and I just want to run back onto the grid. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see as these states go, you know, part of what we keep hearing about is maps. How do we best map the information for the dollars that we're, we're going to be spending? And that's where it's going to be really interesting to see how the states do put their plans together and you know what it is that they decide are the, their connectivity goals. So the goal setting is going to be really important to how those dollars flow and looking at where they need to use the resources for either the unserved or underserved populations, whatever is their goal. Um, yeah, I think it's too early to tell how successful the IIJA is going to be when it comes to meeting these, you know, build out goals. One of the things that is I think critical to its success is ensuring that the NTIA exercises its oversight authority um, as states are, you know, presenting its plans to NTIA for the money and how they plan to use it to build out, you know, making sure that those plans actually align with the goals of the funding and the goals of the program is going to be incredibly important. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about what you all said, and I, I want to go back to what Andrew said as we wrap this conversation up. I never knew how important it was to do reasonable and appropriate spectrum management until I started hanging out with people like you. And I started thinking through how we actually align those spectrum management goals or what we're trying to do to provide universal broadband. And so here we are right now with that opportunity, and I agree with everybody, maps, metrics, and meaningful use of spectrum is really going to be the game changer if we're going to do this right. So, Andrew, you're not the only person staying up at night. I just want to tell you that. We could have used more time for this conversation because this is a really tough area. But at the same time, it was really enlightening, I think, for those of us who continue to learn more and more about this invisible asset. So first and foremost, thank you all for coming today to be on the show. Well, thank you, thank for, you for having me. Yes, thank you for having us. Yeah, listen, audience, we are coming back with Spectrum 
2.0 because I think Kathleen hit it. We can keep making these assets available, but the extent to which we start thinking through the use cases, I think is an important conversation going forward. I also want to say we got a lot of watching to do because we're going to need this asset to be able to do the type of ubiquitous deployment that we want to do in a seamless fashion. And it will take a variety of bands as well as licensed and unlicensed cases for us to do it right. So come on back. Come back and listen to the Tech Tank podcast where we actually take big bits and we turn them into bites so that you can understand some of the pressing issues affecting tech policy today. We'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.